As we've already mentioned today, we're certainly thankful that God has looked upon us with the favor of health and the other things in our life are well sufficiently allowing us to gather today. And oh, how grateful we are that God has showered us, in fact, with those blessings in that way. The songs we have sung have been encouraging and uplifting. And now as we come to at least a portion of the Word of God for our consideration, may I invite you to think with me about the last of our controversial topics for this year. Back in January, which has been a number of months ago clearly at this point, we set before ourselves the idea that we would look for one of the lessons each month at certain controversial topics. We have done that, and along the way we have given a lot of interest to things that men may consider controversial, but really God's Word doesn't paint it that way at all. Things like baptism and male leadership in the church and circumstances surrounding other activities of worship. As we come today to the last, what about translations of the Bible? As you and I know, there's a great deal of discussion and, in fact, controversy as it surrounds the idea of these particular translations. Why don't we take a moment today, not only reflecting somewhat on that topic and theme, but cementing in our understanding some very critical matters of very important truth. You probably hold in your lap a particular Bible or maybe you, you search it in other ways at the house. As you and I give thought to the Bible, it's easy for a book to have the letters B-I-B-L-E on its cover. You and I, though, should have a different interest than just a book that has those letters on its cover. It's easy to talk about translations of the Bible, and quite frankly, it's easy to take them for granted. Let's take a moment today, not only thinking somewhat about the marvelous Bible, but the characteristic of the fact it is the Word of God, and we want a translation that honors it that way. It is with all that said that let's go to our next slide and appreciate, first of all, the need for Bible translations. The Word of God, of course, was inspired by virtue of the Holy Spirit. And the books of the Bible were written at definitive times at certain positions in the past. So, for instance, Moses wrote... And you and I know even Jesus made reference to that in John the 10th chapter. Furthermore, we appreciate that Jeremiah and Paul and yea, many others, approximately four, I'm sorry, 40 Bible writers. But there's a fact that's very evident to be noted. The original languages in which those books of the Bible were written were not English. They were not English. Rather, the vast majority of the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And likely, none of us can read Hebrew. Furthermore, most of the other portions of the Bible, some were written in Aramaic, those Old Testament sections as well. And the New Testament was completely written in Koine Greek. And so the fact remains, if you and I are able to read Hebrew or Aramaic or Greek, then we could read the Bible in its original autographs, its original prescriptions. But the fact is, again, you and I are not in position to read that. We don't speak Aramaic. We don't speak Greek. We don't speak Hebrew. We're not able to read those languages. You'll notice it on that slide. That brings us to a very strong consideration in light of translations. Aren't we thankful then that somebody who could read those languages 
took the time and took the investment of labor in order to take that original language of Hebrew and then transcribe and interpret it and present it in a way that's a language that you and I could read like English. You may notice about the middle of that slide. Those Old Testament scriptures, those written in Hebrew, the time actually came when even the Israelite people were not thoroughly conversant in such a way that they were easily able to read some of them. We read about that in the book of Nehemiah. There came a time when they did not speak that language. They had been taken into captivity, and over the course of that time, they, of course, had been surrounded with other languages. And after a couple of generations, their children had lost the capacity to appreciate and to understand as thoroughly as once had been the features surrounding that original Hebrew. And so, translations came to be an important thing. Near the bottom of that slide, I point out to you that some of the features about that even take us to the New Testament itself. Those Old Testament scriptures were written over a period of time of about 1,100 years. The first writer of the Old Testament, Moses, wrote at a time frame approximately 1,100 years earlier than the writer of the last book of the Old Testament, which was Malachi. 1,100 years approximately. And yet, during the course of that time, it was the God of heaven who motivated those persons to record those inspired writings and to do so in Hebrew. Today, again, aren't you and I thankful that there are means that you and I have that we can read those thoroughly wonderful passages and read them in languages other than Hebrew. One last thing on that slide then might be this one. The Greek culture under the leadership of Alexander the Great, it came to be a rather dominant and impressive thing, and so the time came the Greek language was rather well dispersed. And so a translation that was rather prominent came to be the case. It's called the Septuagint. It's the last observation on that slide. There came a time when there were those who translated the Hebrew Scriptures into Greek, and that was called the Septuagint translation. And you might take note that that's the translation from which Jesus often quoted. So the first thing you and I can learn, it's not wrong to have a translation. The Lord used one. Not only that, other Bible writers used one. All of that does lead us to make some additional applications by making this particular statement. That Septuagint translation to which I made reference, it actually came to be in about 280 B.C. And the particulars came about by a very large, impressive group of scholars who were charged to take those Hebrew scriptures and translate them into Greek. And that Septuagint translation is such that there were six translators from each tribe. Six times twelve is seventy-two. And therefore, that larger group of people with cross-checks and balances brought about that translation that you and I would call the Septuagint. To this day, many, many other translations, of course, have taken place over the years since then. I've quickly invited you to notice. Translations continue today in which the Word of God is now presented in English, in Spanish, in German, and yea, so many other languages around the world. 
You and I today thus could read the Word of God and we can read it in English. And I know we're thankful, eternally so, that that's possible. To say it all that way, though, is still to bring back to the question, what's different about some translations compared to others? Are all translations equally good? Could I point out some guidelines which are vital and which are needful and which, in fact, are essential when it comes to appreciating a particular translation? As you and I begin to move our way through that slide, first of all, the Word of God is that which we're dealing with. And therefore, those translators must handle it with care, understanding that they must not tamper with it, that they must not inject their thinking or their philosophies in any way. It is the Word of God because a deceitful handling of it is the very thing condemned in 2 Corinthians 4, verse number 2. To say it, like that is to also add this to it. Don't you and I remember that there are certain places in the Bible in which it was directly said, you do not add to it, speaking of the Word of God, and you do not take anything from it. The ancient children of Israel were directly given that instruction. In Deuteronomy 4 verse 2, do not add to it. Through Moses, God directed the children of Israel to accept and to take that Word of God as God had delivered it. Not only that, it was echoed eight chapters later in Deuteronomy 12, verse 32. They again were not to add anything to it or to take anything from it. Now that principle was not only a vital one for that ancient day of the people of Israel. When we arrive at the times of Proverbs chapter 30, every Word of God is tried and again, even the writer of Proverbs at that point told us rather directly it's not to be added to. One final appreciation might be the last chapter of the Bible. It would certainly seem that the statement of instruction given in Revelation 22 verses 18 and following is directly attached to the book of Revelation itself. But oh, how wonderful it is to contemplate the larger premise the speaker there directly said, You do not add to the words of this prophecy, for those that do so are such that the plagues of this book will be added to you. And he also quickly asserted, You do not take anything from it, for those that do so will have their name taken from the book of life. And so either way, to add to it or to take from it is to bring about great condemnation from God. Those kind of ideas lead me to say this. In Galatians 1, verses 8 and 9, we have a reminder there that there were those in the Galatian area of that first century time who themselves were perverting the gospel. Don't you and I believe it's possible to pervert it by changing particular matters in it or augmenting it with something else or redirecting the purpose or thrust of it? Paul said it was happening in that day and time. You and I have to appreciate the fact it can still happen, certainly for us today. In 2 Peter 3, verse 16, there were those in Peter's day, and he directly referenced them, and they, you see, were twisting the Word of God. May you and I say there's a lot of things in life that can be twisted 
ropes and other things, and that's a good thing. But the Word of God may not rightfully be twisted. To twist it is to change its fundamental character in some way that you take from it the power and majesty, and you take from it the earnestness of what God intended it to have. It's somewhat sad to notice again the statement that Peter made. Some pervert it, but then he said this, to their own destruction. You don't twist it in a way that's good, and you don't in some way alter it in a way that's noble. You do so in a way that's destructive. Well, these kind of premises and these kind of precepts in mind, there's a thought that you and I must now at least keep pretty strongly in mind as we give thought to a translation. What kind of philosophy of translation would you wish the translators to adopt? What kind of approach to the Scriptures would you wish them to utilize? At the bottom, I make a very brief description of a couple of points for you and me to consider. First of all, the translation philosophy should center on that which is basically a word-for-word kind of idea. We take the word in Hebrew or the word in Greek and we put in place what the corresponding English word, for example, is. And that's what you and I would wish. That's a kind of approach we would want to be in case in such a way that that thought is presented in a sentence structure that English would recognize. Now, that particular idea is very different from this. There are some Bible translations whose translators operated on the premise of a philosophical idea. In other words, they read this passage in Hebrew, they interpret what it means, and then they write out in English what that interpretation is. It's easy to see the difference. That means they're interpreting it for you, and what they think it means is what they're writing in English. But that, of course, might not be exactly what it said. In fact, it may be far from what it said because they come to it with their presuppositions, their ideas, and their approaches. At the bottom, I've listed for you a few verses that might be of benefit to us. As we think about what translation approach God would endorse, in Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 7 and 9, Behold, God said, I've put my words in thy mouth. God did not say, I've put my thoughts, I've put my philosophies, I've put my precepts. He said, I've put my words. And those words are what Jeremiah was thus charged to speak. Not only that text in Jeremiah. In 1 Peter 4.11, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. One speaks with words, and thus words are very important, and the Word of God is vital. A moment ago, you and I, in our prayer, we thanked God for the Bible. We thanked Him for this precious text that we have, revealing to us not only the mind of God, but of course what He expects of us in order to please Him. He revealed to us about Jesus the Christ and the church. And He revealed to us about the character of proper worship. And He revealed to us about that wonderful plan of salvation. All those matters He has revealed to us perhaps challenge us with 1 Thessalonians 2.13. 
when Paul addressed those comments to the Thessalonian congregation, he commended them because they received the word not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually also worketh in you that believe. And thus, there was a high recognition and a high nobility to those Thessalonians. They received the word not as some scholarly production, but rather as in fact the word of God. Those guidelines for translations then take us to a few additional comments beginning like this. Near the top of that present slide that's before you, those individuals who are on these translating committees who are responsible for putting into the public enterprise this which is called a Bible, those people have a remarkable responsibility and a great accountability to the God of heaven that they might handle the Word of God correctly, sharing what is the Word of God and not introducing their presuppositions, not introducing their own biases, but to present that which is the Word of God. Could I be so direct as to say it this way? A company or a group of translators that put before the public a particular which is a Bible. And if they have altered, if they've changed, if they've inserted their thinking in some way, then think about how many souls might be impacted by this. For literally generations, how many might ultimately be lost because of it? It's a sobering responsibility to think about the proper handling of the Word of God and to make a translation that would be pleasing and acceptable to God. Speaking about English translations, there are currently hundreds of English translations of the Bible. In fact, I thought to interject the following thought, which it would seem is very appropriate. You and I have heard of various preachers for a long time say, Join the church of your choice. You know, Billy Graham often said that. He would preach a sermon, and then near the close of it, he would just urge the people, you go and you be active and join the church of your choice, as if there's more than one. He was mistaken about that, of course. There is only one, Ephesians 4, verse 4. But I make that point to say this. It is now entirely reasonable to speak about the Bible of your choice. And that's sad. If you want a Bible that teaches or is directed in a certain way, you probably can find it. If you want a Bible that has a certain presupposition in light of what it teaches, you probably can find it. It's now quite easy to say that you can appreciate and find a Bible of your choice. Let me give you a few examples. If you particularly are of a persuasion that you want to believe in salvation by faith alone, you probably will like the Revised Standard Version of the Bible because that's in there. If you read it for what it presents, that's what it teaches. If you happen to have an interest in being a member of Christ but not the church, you probably will like the New International Version, the NIV you begin to get a sense as you look at various passages which are found in these translations 
if you just read it for what it says, that's what it teaches. If you have a presupposition and an interest in Calvinism, you can find a Bible that will uphold it. If you have a great interest in Catholic doctrine, you can find a Bible that will allow you to be comfortable believing that very thing. If you don't happen to like water baptism, you can find a Bible that in fact will take those particular passages and reword them in a way that you'll feel a lot better about not being water baptized. If you like Pentecostalism, or if you have an interest in the direct operation of the Holy Spirit, you can find it. If the Bible you're holding is too big and you want a littler one, you can find it. And I don't mean just smaller print. Just take out parts of it. There are places that have done it. Point is, whatever your personal preference might well be, you can find something that will have the word B-I-B-L-E on its outside, but it may be a far cry. And it may be far different from that Word of God, which the God of heaven actually revealed because of various preferences of the human family in different ways. Could we not highlight the fact that there is a very serious future danger, of course, to this? For these books that, again, say the word Bible on the exterior, people trust a Bible. The word Bible carries a special force. It has a very sweet idea to it. Most anybody will have a regard for this which supposedly says it's a Bible, and they may well have confidence in it and assurance in what it contains. And so again, when you read about certain passages in it, which when written say these very odd and strange and untrue things, you begin to see how dangerous it can be. May we be quick to point out then that once a danger, once a translation has put these things out there, it's very hard to retrieve it and to undo it and to convince somebody because they'll say, well, my Bible says it. Well, hold it now. You said your Bible. The Bible doesn't belong to any one of us in particular. We need a faithful and highly regarded translation but often that leads into a whole different discussion from the one that was, in fact, immediately to be considered. And suddenly the power of the moment may be lost because they're reading out of something that is not the true Word of God. I mentioned earlier that there are hundreds of these English translations of the Bible. So it might well be that we could ask, so what would be at least a reliable translation? a translation to which we could turn and have confidence in what it presents. I've listed a few of them at the bottom, and I thought we might take a moment and at least make a few brief comments about these. The King James translation is the one I've listed first, not as though it's the only one. There are many people who it seems almost regard the King James translation as the only reliable translation. I might point out there are other translations more reliable than it based on their association to the original languages. But can you go to heaven with the King James translation? Absolutely. One of the greatest issues that sometimes we encounter is that the language in which it was written is not the same 
by way of some words as the English language you and I use today. And so as you read the King James translation, you read words like concupiscence, and you read words like what, W-O-T, and we don't talk like that here in America. So one thing that you have to be mindful of is as you read that is to be appreciative of what that English word is and what it really means. But the King James translation is a good translation. To that we could add the new King James Version. It came along, of course, several hundred years later, but it too is a fine translation of the Bible. It has, of course, done away with some of those archaic words, but the main consideration connected to that reliability and the philosophy of translation is still a good one in that New King James Version as well. The next one I've added for your consideration is even more recent. The English Standard Version. It came out only really a few years ago at this point. But again, it is a translation that is highly regarded. It still approaches that translation philosophy of, again, a word-for-word -word kind of idea. And so in it, you and I will find much that is to be noted about the English Standard Version of the Bible. We might pause at this point and say that it's possible to purchase, of course, a Bible in which not only is the actual text of the Bible in place, but that there are translator's notes provided as well. Those translator's notes are merely the interpretation of a man, a man or group of men. And so one has to be a bit careful about them, obviously, understanding that perhaps that individual or group of people has done the best of which they were capable, but maybe they came at it with presuppositions which were incorrect. And sometimes those will appear inside those translator's notes as well. The next one on the list I invited you to consider was the New American Standard Bible. It too, it would seem, is a fairly reliable one. Not much I can offer in light of causing great concern. It's probably not as popular as the others, I admit. The final one on the list is the American Standard Version of 1901. That one is generally regarded as the single best translation in light of connection to the original languages that has ever been produced. I might point out they're getting hard to find. Denise and I have several of these uh, ASVs of 1901, but if you're able to find one and you would wish to have it, you might want to get it because, again, they're getting seemingly more and more difficult to find these ASVs of 1901. As you think about that list of translations, may I point out that I think would complete the list. The others like the NIV, I would not recommend it. The RSV, I would not recommend it. The Holman Bibles, I wouldn't recommend any of them. The Contemporary English Bible, wouldn't recommend it. You've probably heard of some other names that go with various other possible ones. The Cotton Patch Bible and the Breaches Bible. I wouldn't recommend any of them. What you and I can appreciate is we can be so thankful that there are reliable translations available. And as always, we strive to study and learn from them that which is the Word of God. Brother Dennis read earlier in our service today from Matthew chapter 4, verse number 4. This was in the scene of that temptation circumstance of the Lord. 
And you may recall that though he was tempted by the devil to turn the stones into bread, the Lord responded by saying, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, you and I can, again, be mindful that God, I suppose, could have given us information that would have taken up a 25-volume set had He wanted to. But He gave us 66 books, 30, 39 of them in the Old Testament and 27 in the New. And that Old Testament consists of those books from Genesis to Malachi and the New Testament from Matthew to Revelation. And we appreciate that those comprise and exhaustively complete that Word which God has revealed to us by way of the Holy Spirit. In 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scriptures of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And the Holy Ghost thus is the prime mover when it came to the Bible. He directed those individuals to write what they did. They thus weren't writing their thoughts. They were writing God's Word. Just as we noted earlier in light of Jeremiah, Behold, I put my words in thy mouth. And even as David understood it in 2 Samuel 23, 2, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and His Word was in my tongue. For that reason, you and I can have the highest of regard for the Bible for the true Word of God. And we can longingly appreciate the blessing of a faithful and reliable translation, and we can rest our eternal destiny upon that which it presents. One of the things that Bible brings before us is, of course, the marvelous love of God presented to us in the coming of the Christ and the gospel ministration which is of Him and the church which He built and the truth and the doctrine which that church so faithfully teaches. In 1 Timothy 3, verse number 15, the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. It is the case then today, as we have again noted, there probably would be much controversy connected to the various translations. And some would agree that nearly every translation is good and reliable. But that isn't so. Due to the translation philosophy of those who produced it, Today, as you and I appreciate the Word of God in a faithful translation, a reliable one, we can know then of the plan of salvation. And we can thus attend to it and be obedient to it and to the other things which God has revealed. If there might be a person in this assembly whose life is not as it ought to be, perhaps you've never become a Christian. You know what the Word of God teaches. Perhaps you have been in positions to understand that for many, many years, but you've never attended to that need. Today, the God of heaven again calls you through the gospel. 2 Thessalonians 2.14 And Jesus died on the cross for you. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 And each of us are able to appreciate what the God of heaven asks of us to believe upon Jesus as a Son of God, to repent of our sins, to confess His name, and to be baptized for the remission of our sins. If today we could be of some assistance in that regard, we'd be happy to help. 
But if you have known the Christian life, but as of today you're not faithful to it in the way that God would want you to be, then why not make a change? Why not recognize that a reliable translation will say things like this, You've left your first love, Revelation 2.5, and you need thus to come back to His faithful side. A hymn of encouragement has been selected, and if that might be the need of your life, if you'll repent of those sins and make confession of them, the Lord has promised to forgive them, and He will again remove from you all the guilt connected with those sins. And you'll be able to serve Him in faithfulness and serve Him in a way in which your name in the book of life could redound into the great eternity that you can look forward to. Today, if we could be of some assistance at this moment, in either of these ways, we would urge you to come, invite you to come, while together we stand and while we sing.